Welcome to the American Planning Association podcast. This episode continues our series that takes a look at the people behind the plans, showcasing the work, life, and stories of planners from all across the profession. Today we're celebrating World Town Planning Day. I'm your host, Courtney Kashima, founder and principal at Muse Community Design, a planning and public engagement studio in Chicago, Illinois. I'm also a longtime member of the American Planning Association. My guest today is Eugenie Birch, FAICP. Professor Birch is the Lawrence C. Neustorf Chair of Urban Research and Education at the University of Pennsylvania, an all-around planning legend. She is also President of the General Assembly of Partners, which is the engagement platform for the implementation of the United Nations New Urban Agenda, which we will spend some time talking about today. Professor Birch, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It's a wonderful time to be speaking since it'll be World Town Planning Day. It certainly is, and there's no shortage of interesting things to talk about, so let's get right to it. Your research and work spans from the local to the global. What are some of the connections you've seen there, and what draws you to this work? Oh, that's a long story. You know, I've been involved in this work for quite a while, and I originally started in this work uh, way back when I graduated from college, and I had a Fulbright grant. I was uh, sent to Latin America, and that was my introduction to international planning and thinking about some of the issues that we're still struggling with today, in particular how we would accommodate rapid urbanization. Because at the time I went, uh, the places where I visited, including Quito, Ecuador, and Caracas, Venezuela, and Buenos Aires, Argentina, were experiencing the kind of urbanization that we're seeing in other parts of the world today with great growth of informal settlements and so forth. So that brought me to my original interest in housing and shelter, which over time I also looked at uh, this topic domestically, uh, moving from housing and shelter and the informal settlements to thinking about housing policy uh, and how we in the United States developed housing policy. And that led to my dissertation when I decided to get a PhD, where I looked at the origins of American public housing. And that then brought me to a broader issue with domestic issues about thinking about urban revitalization. Um, All of this uh, led me to thinking about how we got to certain places over time, and that instilled my interest in planning history. So there are connections in all of this um, uh, wandering that uh, I've done in my career over time, uh, but they've all been united by a, a deep interest in understanding the dynamics of urbanization. I am interested in urbanization um, and especially how you might summarize the past, present, and future. What are the trends happening now and how are they related to the past? Well, uh, the uh, trends that we're seeing today are very much related to the past. The trends that we're seeing today with regard to urbanization have occurred in different places at different parts of the world at different times. So, if you look at, and we'll just take modern times, you look at late 19th, well, 19th century uh, Europe and the United States, you can see very similar things to what we're seeing in uh, Asia, Africa uh, today, which is basically uh, people drawn to cities uh, because of their 
perception that there's a terrific opportunity in cities, uh, as well as uh, people being thrust into cities because of the lack of opportunities in the, in the country areas. And so we are seeing a similar kind of dynamic occurring um, across the world in Africa and Asia, as I've mentioned. Uh, the differences are the uh, size and the rapidity, the size of the cities that we're seeing growing and the rapidity with which this urbanization is occurring. It's happening at lightning speed now. And I've noticed urbanization is one of many complex issues that sometimes get boiled down to a soundbite. Um, here in the U.S., it seems like just saying the word millennial, you know, can convey a frustration or be the answer to a trend. What are some of the most dangerous or problematic sound bites that you find in this work? Well, I think there's an old sound bite, which was uh, one that equated urbanization with something negative. And I think people forget uh, that urbanization is a driver of prosperity. Uh, so moving people to that understanding is really important. And the only way we can do that is to think about the way that urbanization has created prosperity in the past and understand those features and translate those features into the present and the future. Because urbanization in the past did not happen smoothly. It happened with lots of ups and downs, lots of issues with regard to the quality of life of the people who are coming into urban places, uh, particularly with regard to uh, the level of housing that they had, with the services that they were, they were given, and so forth. We are seeing a repetition of this pattern in the developing world, uh, and what we need to see is a repetition of the patterns of reforms that we saw in the developed world. So in the developed world, we passed housing legislation. We built better housing. We made sure we had clean water. We made sure we had clean sewer. We made sure we had transportation. We need to do the same sort of thing in rapidly urbanizing places today. You mentioned your early exposure um, through your Fulbright scholarship in Latin America. Sometimes it feels like in the U.S. we're quick to look to Europe and not as quick to look to Latin America. Transportation comes to mind, for example. Some of the fascinating things happening with equity and mobility, how cyclovias have taken over the world. And I know transportation isn't necessarily your area of expertise, but are there other things like that um, where you've noticed we may look to one part of the world and be neglecting lessons learned from somewhere else? Well, I think there are um, ways by which we can study and understand the lessons happening worldwide. And I would recommend uh, an upcoming conference that will be occurring in Kuala Lumpur, which is called the World Urban Forum. It is the every other year uh, convening that is uh, uh, sponsored by United Nations Habitat. And at meetings such as that, as well as in the publications of uh, a number of UN agencies in particular, we will see best practices explained and, uh, and shown. And uh, you've mentioned transportation. Uh, it's not just ciclovias. It's, be, it's bus rapid transit. It's uh, thinking of equitable transit-oriented development, which is thinking about how you bring housing and transportation together and build that as one. Um, it is uh, thinking about how we are arranging public space uh, to make sure that we have sufficient public space and the ideas there are around what we call urban extensions, uh, that is 
planning places beforehand with reserving the public space and then filling in the housing later and making letting and other uses later. Um, there are, are many, many examples of this from around the world. What we have to do when we think about these examples is to understand what the critical success factors are in making them examples that need to be that could be replicated and understanding the context in which good examples have arisen because you cannot just take an example and transplant it without understanding the context. Absolutely. I know another part of your work that may fit in here is formalizing the informal economy, which can be very contextual. And I think a lot of times when planners think about the informal economy, um, they think about it happening abroad, but there's some really interesting opportunities, in my opinion, at the very local level to um, incorporate this into plans we produce. For example, when I grew up, every birthday cake was made by a neighbor, right? You, you might have taken your car to a different neighbor to have it fixed. Those are very small examples of the inform informal economy here in the U.S. Um, just wondering if you have something to say about uh, how this has worked abroad and at home. Well, I think the biggest hope that we have now in the United States is to thinking about entrepreneurship and how we're going to support entrepreneurship, because that's what you're talking about when you're talking about going to the neighbor and buying the birthday cake, that the neighbor had the... Uh, the energy and the imagination to create a small business. So um, it, what, what is it very exciting that's occurring in many, many cities now um, is the uh, creativity of a number of young people and old people, I guess, um, who are thinking about new ways to create services and businesses. And so finding ways to support this kind of entrepreneurship is, is, is something that um, is happening um, in many places of the world, whether it's happening out of necessity, uh, as we see in many of the informal settlements of the rapidly urbanizing world, uh, where it's a survival question, or whether it's happening out of uh, creativity, uh, which we see uh, it's a form of necessity here, too, because different kinds of jobs are drying up. Uh, it's, it's something that we need to think about. Well, how do we create this, this environment where these things can flourish? Part of that environment is, uh, from a planning point of view, is allowing for this kind of these kinds of activities to have the space they need to have to flourish and that takes some creative thinking part of it of course is joining with our other service providers and thinking about the level of education that is needed for people to engage in these kinds of activities so there's a lot of things that we have to be thinking about with regard to this but it's happening in many places and we need to understand how to encourage it to continue Right. It sounds like it's basically about creating a path. So the neighbor who's baking the cakes in her home kitchen, you know, creating that path, partnering with people who have shared concerns and values um, so that that neighbor, you know, may turn it into an actual business. Yes, it's the, it's the local business as you're describing it. But there are also very interesting things happening, again, around the world with uh, partnerships between universities, uh, venture capital investors, entrepreneurs, and, and, and so forth, living and working in the same place. So creating spaces in 
communities where these things can happen is another pathway that we need to be thinking about. So that takes me to my next question. In 2015, the United Nations adopted 17 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, to, quote, transform our world. And the timeline for this is the next 15 years. And when it's all said and done, I mean, they've they've issued some very ambitious goals. End poverty, protect the planet, and ensure prosperity for all. Tell us about your involvement in the SDGs and your vision for them. Well, these are it's a very exciting time. You have to go back a little bit in history to understand uh, the importance of these SDGs. The United Nations, as you know, was formed in 1947. It was formed to, of course, avoid conflict and promote peace. And uh, one of the aspects of promoting peace was to have a development arm that would work on uh, eliminating the, the issues that might not promote peace, that is, uh, the, to, to, to uh, raise people's economic and social positions. And over time, the United Nations had various approaches to this. They would have a decade in which they looked at something and another decade at that. But in 2000, they decided to think, they came up with this idea of, 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 of outlining what they called Millennium Development Goals. There were eight of them. And the idea was to focus the UN agencies as well as the nations on very specific sorts of things that might be measured. And uh, these were highly aspirational. Uh, they were eight things that were basically uh, grounded in health, education, gender, and so forth. Um, they did focus member states in the world's attention on these items and were deemed to be quite successful, not that they were entirely achieved, but successful in framing and focusing investments and activities. And so at the end of that first 15 years of the MDGs, the decision was taken by the member states to create another set of goals that would frame development. The original MDGs were focused only on poor countries or developing economies. This time around, it was decided it was these these goals, um, which would become the SDGs, should be universal. They should be applied to all uh, member states because all member states had issues with with um, these kinds of topics, uh, and also it was thought that they should be extended. So there was a very long participatory process, which was a really interesting process because it included a good deal of citizen participation and expert contributions to determining what these goals might be. I was extremely active in the goal to promote uh, what's now Goal 11, which uh, states as follows, make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable, and has articulated under its seven targets which range from housing to disaster reduction to environmental protection to providing sufficient open space and so forth. It was a tough fight because there were many member states who really didn't appreciate the importance of cities and the importance of thinking about the physical space in cities, but um, ultimately we were able to convince them to do so, and we now have that goal. Uh, That leads us to... Uh, the next big thing that happened in the urban area, which was the Habitat 3 conference and its outcome, which was something called the New Urban Agenda. 
So how do the SDGs and the new urban agenda apply to planning efforts here in the U.S.? Well, let's look at what the new urban agenda says and then relate that to the SDGs and then come back to the United States. So the new urban agenda is, in effect, a roadmap for the accomplishment of the SDGs. I mentioned Goal 11, but there are 23 other targets within the 17 goals, which are particularly urban-focused. So within the new urban agenda, there's a very simple formula for thinking about how to achieve those targets and those goals. And that formula revolves around three things. The first thing is getting the governance right, making sure that you have the rules, the legislation, the framework at the national, regional, and local levels to achieve those goals. The second thing is in the New Urban Agenda, it argues for having and paying attention to the planning and management of spatial urban, urban spatial development. And the last thing is to make sure that there is a means of implementation, meaning that you have sufficient knowledge, that you have sufficient financing, and you have sufficient capacity building to achieve those goals. So uh, how do we apply this in the United States? Well, we apply this in the United States by thinking about these three big buckets and applying them. Uh, do we have sufficient framework, legal framework, to achieve what we need to do? I think we could work a lot more, for example, on the metropolitan level. Many problems and many issues that we have need a metropolitan solution, but we don't have any, we don't really have a sufficient approach to a well-planned metropolitan approach to um, sustainable development in the United States. In terms of managing and planning uh, spatial urban spatial development, I think that's very obvious. We are very engaged in that at the local level, and uh, we are not engaged, however, at the national level. We do not have what one might call national urban policy, and we probably should be thinking about that more specifically with regard to how we balance our territorial development and so forth. And lastly, uh, the means of implementation. We think about knowledge, capacity building, and financing. Well, um, we just need to galvanize these things around the topics uh, locally that are important. And uh, there's a good deal of work among planning scholars as well as other professionals and scholars dealing with um, issues that, are, that pertain to the United States related to the SDGs. Uh, for example, uh, we have a issues of hunger, we have issues of congestion, we have issues of affordable housing, we have issues of uh, environmental pollution. Um, we have lots of things to do that uh, planners can be involved in. Which cities have taken on this charge, either domestically or abroad? This is a very interesting exercise that a group called the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, SDSN, has taken up there within that organization. There is a special cities group. And the cities group has worked with three cities in particular to illustrate and work with those cities to show them what they're doing and how it conforms to what the S the SDG goals are. In other words, you can't, I don't think in any place, you can't just say you must do these SDGs. You have to talk and be engaged in conversations with a locality or jurisdiction. Say, let's see what you're doing. Let's see how it matches, and let's see what we can do to make the match more closely aligned. So what SDSN did was create a handbook to show you how to do this, and they 
experimented with um, New York City, and they showed how its uh, strategic plan uh, is very much aligned. It's called New York One, and they they parsed New York One against the SDGs. Uh, They've done the same thing in Baltimore and the same thing in San Jose. And so um, there are uh, other cities that uh, have undertaken these sorts of things, but this handbook is a really good example of of, uh, how cities can uh, adapt what they're doing uh, to this. The other area, of course, that we haven't talked about is that of climate change, and there is a climate change uh, SDG. Uh, and as you, we all know, um, cities and localities, states and cities have uh, taken up the, the uh, cause of uh, addressing issues of climate change, and that's one, perhaps one of the most promising, exciting areas that we have today. As you mentioned earlier, it's an exciting time, I think, particularly for cities. Um, For example, the current U.S. administration has pulled out of UNESCO and seems less interested in general in sustainability. And as a result, we've seen cities lead the charge independent of the federal government in many arenas, climate change one of them. What kind of partnerships and actions are being taken or can be taken at the city level to maintain our role in these areas? Well, interestingly enough, so many of these uh, issues that are defined as global issues are really local issues. And so, uh, as you have rightly said, cities are taking taking these items up. Uh, they're passing the city plans that uh, have to do with uh, creating more equitable uh, environments. Uh, they've got sustainability plans they've, uh, uh, and so forth. And so the implementation of these global agreements is happening um, at the local level, not only in the United States, but in many places around the world, uh, because these are defined problems globally, but they're in actuality uh, seen at the local level. So as an academic, what does this say to you about the power and role of cities in general? Well, cities have a tremendous amount of power, but cities, of course, are part of a national framework. And so what we need to understand um, is how a national framework can enable the cities to do their work and to make the changes that might be necessary to allow that to happen. Now, that's a huge statement. Now, what I'm getting at is uh, that uh, here in the United States, for example, one of the most important things that we did to improve life, the life of cities was pass our environmental legislation, clean air, clean water, and so forth. And uh, we passed the legislation at the federal level, but actually implemented these things at the uh, local and regional levels. And so many countries don't have that kind of relationship. They don't have the what we call subsidiarity, which is allocating the responsibilities for what needs to be done at the appropriate level of government. And so a city can't do it alone. A nation can't do it alone. It's figuring out the appropriate roles of each to make sure that all can do the roles that they are best suited to do. So this work is obviously big. It's important. Um, It's complicated, nuanced. I'm going to ask you to tell us what you see as the number one opportunity and the number one challenge going forward. Well, the number one opportunity is the fact that the world's attention is now turned toward cities uh, and urbanization because of the dominance of urban populations. Uh, 
if we were having this conversation 50 years ago, people say, well, cities are interesting, but, uh, you know, there are lots of other things we need to talk about. But now, when we realize how important cities are to national economies, in most places they produce something like 70% of the national GDP, how important they are to addressing uh, uh, global issues such as climate change. Uh, cities produce something like 70% of the greenhouse gases um, and uh, how important they are for thinking about equitable uh, development uh, just because of the pure numbers of population living in cities. Um, I think we can see the opportunities and the challenges just in the fact that we are an urban world. Let me lighten things up a little bit and ask you, what are some of your favorite cities in the world? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> there are so many. I don't think I could. Um... Maybe the ones that have really stuck with you. I I won't ask you your favorite, well, but just those ones. I live that... in New York. I live in New York, so, of course, I am very favorably disposed towards New York City and the enormous changes that have occurred in that city in the time that I've lived there from being a graduate student to the present. And it's been it's been transformed in terms of the amenities, in terms of the quality of life, in terms of uh, uh, what a wonderful place it is, in terms of the dynamism, the um, uh, integration of populations and so forth. So I, I would say New York City for me is a, a number one place. But I've had the joy of visiting many cities around the world, uh, and they all have certain certain attractions. I mean, every place from Nairobi to Venice to London to um, Sao Paulo to Rio, uh, each one has its own special qualities. And so I wouldn't want to uh, point any as a favored child. I understand that. I'm wondering in closing if you could give some advice to a local planner, maybe a mayor, an elected official, the first thing they could do to connect their work to the SDGs, where would they start or how could they uh, incorporate it? Well, I think the first thing they have to do is to work with civil society because there's an enormous amount of energy in civil society to reconcile what they're doing with what the SDGs are talking about. Um, so it's a trans. We have to translate what these global agreements mean at the local level, and the way to do that, obviously, is through conversation and engagement and knowledge. First, what they have to say, and second, uh, an understanding what the initiatives and the goals of a particular place it are, uh, what the goals are that a mayor might have, and how they are um, in congruence with the SDGs. Well, I really appreciate your comments today. It's important that each of us as professionals uh, lifts our head once in a while and understands that we should think globally even though we plan locally. Thanks so much for your time today. Well, you're welcome. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that you're doing, and I hope uh, that uh, you will be able to do more of this. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the American Planning Association podcast. For more information and to hear past episodes, visit planning.org slash podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Have an idea for a podcast? Send them to podcast at planning.org. 